Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. Now, recently, I had the good fortune to catch up with friend of the show, Julian Darius, to discuss one of the most iconic Judge Dredd stories in the character's 40-plus year history. From 1990, we discussed Judge Dredd America. Now, before we get stuck in, I think it's worth providing some history for those listening that don't, well, don't know much about the character of Judge Dredd and the world in which he inhabits. So, Judge Dredd first appeared in the second issue of British sci-fi and horror anthology comic, 2000 AD, in 1977. A judge is a law enforcement officer in this dystopian future. Following a nuclear war, the world's population has been forced into several megacities, the largest of which is Megacity One, which covers a vast portion of the east coast of what was America. With over 400 million people crammed into this area, with few jobs and tensions high, you need a force to keep a lid on it all. This is where the Justice Department steps in. They're an armed enforcement agency and rule Mega City with the Chief Judge and the Supporting Council of Five. Judges are the street enforcers, with the ability to dispense instant justice as judge, jury, and when they deem it required, executioner. The most feared of these judges is Judge Joseph Dredd, a clone of the first Chief Judge. What makes the continuity of Judge Dredd different is that it has progressed in real time. This means that Dredd is now 40 years older than he was when he first appeared in 1977. So, unlike the perpetually young Batman or Tony Stark, events take their toll and will have an impact on events and continuity years later. The story that we are going to discuss today is a prime example of this, as it has ramifications for years to come. So, finally, a quick summary of the plot of Judge Dredd America. A young immigrant family have reached Mega City One, and they are welcoming their daughter into the world. In recognition of their hopes of being in what was America, they name their daughter America, or Amy for short. She grows up with her closest friend, Bennett Beanie. However, as they grow, they each begin to grow apart Several interactions with judges start to ignite a fire in Amy, growing a distrust of the system she is forced to live under. As she grows up, she becomes more and more disenchanted, eventually moving away to join the democratic movement. Beanie, on the other hand, uses his musical and comedy talents to become a mega-city star and live a luxurious life. Years later, Amy falls back into Beanie's life and is in deep with the democratic movement, Total War and they have a plan to blow up the, what remains of the Statue of Liberty. Beanie has a decision to make. Does he support total war or tell the judges? His decision has tragic results. Okay, 
So now we know a bit about the world, we know a bit about the story, and I think it's only fair to hand you over to myself and Julian for our deeper discussion. Once again, Julian, for joining me um, and for taking the time to read uh, some Judge Dredd. Uh, I've never really covered Judge Dredd before, which is uh, strange considering he's so important to my uh, comic book origins. Um, I've sort of been wanting to hold, I've sort of been holding off, I think, because he's so important to me. Um, and so, really, to be talking about this story first is. Uh, it seems quite right. So, I don't really understand, like, you know, I know he, he's, he's obviously quite big in, in the UK, he's a big part of UK comic culture. Um, what was your first exposure to Judge Dredd? And, and you know, how is, what's he like in the, what's his sort of uh, um, exposure like in the States? Well, I think in the States, everybody knows about 2000 AD, they know about Judge Dredd. Maybe these days they've seen the movie Dredd or they've seen mm. the Slice Alone one. Um, what a shame! What? It, what a shame! They've seen the Stallone one. The Dread one's much, much better. That's true. I, I'm a big fan of the Dread one. Um, but you know, uh, the Sly Stallone one was from the era in which we didn't have a lot of comic movies, and true. just that there was a Judge Dread movie was cool. Mm. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, I always felt like um, you know. The 2000 AD comics that I bought were collections, mm-hmm. and they were collections that were um, just kind of randomly available. So I would see them in the comic stores, and I'd see, um, you know, maybe it was Skiz, maybe it was, you know, Judge Dredd, but it would be like, uh, or I, I remember one of the first ones I got was um, the Evelyn Wow ba- Bathing in Blood collection. Mm. And, you know, and it's like that. You know, I had no idea what Mega City One was, or you know, you know that Evelyn Wow was like a uh, dick counterpoint to other characters in 2000 AD. Mm. I had no idea what I was reading. Yeah, um, but all these comics were weird and they're different, and I think I feel about them the way I felt about British television that. I watched British television on PBS late at night, and that was my exposure to Doctor Who and Red War. And, you know, all of British television sort of seemed to me like it was transmissions from an alternate universe. <laughs> that, you know, like it was recognizable, you know, like the values, the story structure, all of it was kind of recognizable. It's in, it's in English, mm. although a little different uh, mm. than my English. But... It was always so different and, and so weird in an indescribable kind of like, you know, bent from what I was used to by 25 degrees or something um, that it felt like it was from a parallel universe. And I think that's what I felt about those 2000 AD collections as well. Yeah, and that's it. Because, in, in, you know, in, in reading about this, just sort of doing some research, the thing that comes up a lot is that 
the the 2000 AD tone, that slightly sort of um, anarchic, um, you know, um, darker tone that sort of British comics sort of managed to slip into a lot of things that really I think today is uh, better represented in things like Black Mirror. Uh, that darker form of sci-fi, and it, this is, you know the satirical nature of it, that really I think, that, like I say, a lot of these books, a lot of the good stuff that came out of two thousand AD works on so many levels. I mean, I, I read this um, uh, even like as America when I was a teenager, sort of reading it in my early teens into my mid-teens, and you take it as the bombastic, uh, mostly action-packed, you know. Um, crime-busting adventure story, almost superhero story, just it's almost a superhero, you know. Um, and it's not until you get later on that you sort of, when you're older, um, you know, I remember reading it was at university and carried on, and you start to tweak and twig, that there's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this is, you know, this is this is taking a stab at something. And then I went back and I read some of my early, the earlier stories, and you sort of, you know, you, you, you realise that the introduction of certain characters... Or um, certain fads and stuff, you know, and certain things that happen in Mega City, are such a sort of a almost blatant in some respects stab at some part of um, you know Western culture. Yeah, and often there's so many sort of like parodies of uh, a movie that was out or a trend that was out mm. that kind of like mirrored in you know the Judge Dredd future. Um, and sometimes, like, with the Burger Wars section of, uh, of the Cursed Earth, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily date well. Although, you know, I mean, that led to, you know, reprint concerns. But, you know, the same stuff is in Martha Washington. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that, you know, rereading Judge Dredd America, I, I wanted to ask you about, like, the concept of a sort of, like, Judge Dredd canon, because... You know, one of I love that Dread runs in real time, mm. and uh, you know I've read probably something on the order of half of all the Dread stuff. Yeah, uh, I've got a lot of the case files and you know collections, which doesn't include America actually. Um, but uh, which is I, always annoys me that they they don't have everything in chronological mm. order. But um, you know, but coming from the other side of the pond. You know, I got random, you know, trade collections here and there, and they started putting out the Ellis stuff and, you know, Necropolis, and, you know, I gobbled all that up and and researched it online, but I didn't experience it while it was going on, and I didn't, I don't have, you know, I have, from research, some of the sense of the breadth of Dread and and the history of Dread, but, you know, I was surprised that... uh, uh, America is pretty constantly listed as like the best dread story or one of the best. And, you know, it was just another story that I read and I enjoyed, but I didn't, you know, I would think of like Judge Dread, Judge Death, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, the, the Judge Cow stuff and, and other stuff. So, I mean, you know, how, what is the legacy of America or how does it fit into a kind of canon of Dread stories? It's interesting, really. I think, because I, I was thinking about this, as it, like, you know, what is its impact on, on the Dread world? Because, like you say, technically, 
it doesn't really impact Dread at all, Judge Dread uh, himself at all. It's just another day in the office sort of thing. You know, he, he's he's um, there's a there's a there's an attack, and you know he has to he, he has to investigate it, and it results in um, as, as he sees it, the law being served. Um, and so you do you do think of the bigger stories like the Apocalypse War, uh, Necropolis. Um, those sorts of things that have like you know major impacts on on Mega City and, and Judge Dredd himself, but it, it's funny. I, I I almost think of America as akin to um, the sort of like, in the modern Doctor Who series. There was, there's an episode called Blink, um, which is about the the Weeping Angels, and uh, Doctor Who barely appears in it. He sort of appears, you know, he sort of appears bits and pieces. But it's about someone being caught in that sort of like outer periphery, and it's sort of, it's almost like someone's taking a step backwards and having a wider look at um, the Doctor Who mythos and what it what it actually means to live in a world where you know you can be his companion, that's fine, but then to be a just to exist in this world means actually you're at danger from these creatures and these things, and I feel a little bit that's the same with with America with with Judge Dredd America. In that same thing, it's like John Wagner's taken a step back and said, "Look, yeah, you followed all these stories of dread, but actually, you know, this is actually just yeah. a, this is a citizen, or you know, well, technically, because she's born in Mega City, but this is this is this is the story of someone who just lives in this world, um, and it is actually this is their experience, and dread's actually just in the background. Um, there's nothing more really than a boogeyman. Like he, he is the fear factor in this. He is the baddie, like the villain figure. Um, and I think that's why it's 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 a, it's a tipping point in many things because up until this point, you've had things like the Kerr Third Saga, the Judge Charles Saga, Apocalypse, the Apocalypse War, um, Wilderlands. You've had those big big stories, and Dread's always been the hero. Yeah, you know, yes, he's he's vicious, he's grumpy. Um, you know, he's, he's by the book and all that sort of stuff, but he's always been the hero. And I think America acts as almost like a tipping point where John Wagner was a bit like, well, well you know, we've done all the satire, but don't forget, this is, in all in all fairness, this is still a, a, a you know, an autocratic fascist society. And maybe yeah, we... Absolutely. And maybe we shouldn't be celebrating the heroics of, you know, this um, masked... You know, secret police kind of soldier, really. Right, and and this gets at something that we've talked about in in other podcasts of kind of you know my as I get older, my problems with Batman, my problems mm. with a lot of sort of superhero stories. Um, I remember when Warren Ellis uh, was writing the Authority, and then Mark Miller took it over, and nine eleven happened, and. Um, you know, at the time, it was it was a big shock, and, and different writers were all kind of weighing in about how do you continue writing a superhero story in the wake of, mm. you know, this sort of shock to the American system. And Ellis said, uh, I think I'm really well positioned because, uh, you know, for me, the authority are the bad guys. It's just that I put them up against bigger bad guys who are worse than them, uh, but they are absolute autocrats. Uh, you know, they're not the good guys. Yeah. Um, and he said, it's Judge Dredd. Um, and when Americans read Judge Dredd, what they see is the superhero. Yes. And it, it's Brits who see, yeah, this is, this is you know, uh, autocratic, and, and, and he is kind of the bad guy. Uh, 
job. Yes. Uh, you know, so, so there's kind of, there's a democracy movement, and there's been some stories about uh, a democracy movement, and uh, Dredd has already kind of, uh, you know, questioned some of his positions, although, you know, that, that seems to be, I know that kind of comes into play later, as he, you know, commits to, like, uh, muty rights and, and things like that. Mm. Uh, but, so that had kind of been, like, a tension behind the scenes when America comes in and says, here's what it's like, we're going to tell the story from the victim's point of view, uh, of Judge Dredd. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing. Like I said, she, she, you know, she is, Amy, or if you want to call it America, the, the, the main character in the story. Well, it's not, she's not, she's, she's the sort of, there's a narrator in... Um, uh, Bennett Beanie, and then obviously he's telling the story of, of America, uh, this main female protagonist. But like you said, that, that's the thing with with the Judge Dredd um, uh, uh, continuity, and the fact that John Wagner has written you know the vast majority of it, and you know seems to hold it all in his head. Um, this isn't like I say, this isn't uh, just a drop. You know, this isn't just a single story. This, this has clearly been built to this idea of the the, the democratic peaceful march. That's mentioned in the story, uh, the idea of the democracy movement again, like it's popped up again and again, and this story as well. Um, we said about the legacy. This is the first mention of um, the terrorist organisation uh, Total War, and uh, right. Total War in the last couple of years have become really important. So they, you know, they have uh, they've appeared in in several major stories, uh, and then obviously more than that. You know, there's a there's a continuation of this of this story directly, and several characters continue and have become uh, supporting characters that have cropped up again and again. So this is it. The great thing about the story is like you know, it's almost like in the Dread film. I always take it in that sort of respect that the Dread movie with with Carl Urban, you're watching that film and it's sort of like you know it's epic and it it, it destroys part of like a mega block and and uh, you know hundreds of people well tens of people are killed and you know all this other stuff. And then, really, at the end of the day, it's just another day in the office. You know, Dread right. gets on his bike and he's off to the next thing. And that's the thing with this. It's sort of like this story tells something, but it, it, at no point does Dread in this story like his arc is completely flat. You know, he starts as an autocrat and he ends as an autocrat. If anything, it mm-hmm. just it just cements him in that position. And I find that sort of quite. It puts him in, you know, like you said, it, it, it makes him the least sympathetic I think he'd ever been up until this point. Yeah, I was wondering about that because because there are those kind of flash pages where Dredd has captions in the story, and his captions are just, you know, really vicious. I mean, you're used to him saying sort of, I am the law, mm. you know, you know, I mean, so many of those strips end with Dredd sentencing somebody to prison who you think isn't all that bad, but, you know, and it's kind of like a little gag at the end, like, you know, maybe you don't like the guy and Dredd sentences him to an ISO cube for littering, or, you know, maybe you do like the guy and Dredd's being a little harsh, but the law's the law, bucko. Yeah. Um, you know, so you kind of have that before, but uh, the way he just, in those captions, denounces the idea of freedom just comes out and says, screw you and your freedom, basically, um, is, uh, you know, is, is really remarkable. And I thought, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the way it starts. I mean, I, I'm looking at it now, and, you yeah. know, uh, 
Harper writes, but not at the expense of order. I, I can't help but think of Donald Trump here. Yeah. Uh, that's what I like to see, you know, the Statue of Judgment standing there towering over liberty. Um, you know, I mean, it's pretty overt in a way that I don't remember other Dread Stories being. No, and you say that's the the first two panel. I mean, literally the first two pages. It's a it's a it's a splash page of dread, and the first page shows him, you know, in, in all glory, stood on literally standing on an American flag, and the next panel is another splash page, and it pulls out, and it's him stood on the American flag, which is draped over someone who's been shot. You don't see who at this point, and then in the background you've got the Statue of Liberty, which has been damaged uh, in a previous story again continuity and then stood over that literally like towering over it is a, is a, is a huge statue of a judge uh, the statue of judgment and it does it does it does echo that thing he, he's his statement is you know it's yeah, justice has a price the price is freedom so it, yeah. and as far that's him as far as he's concerned it's that black and white it's well you can have freedom but it's anarchy you know, you don't get your justice, or you have justice and order, but you don't get freedom. It, it's, you know, and it's, and you do. So, if you were to be walking into this story thinking you're going to get a, uh, you know, like a blockbuster with lots of weird characters sort of bouncing around and stuff, it's it, it's a statement of intent from the first two pages. Right. It, it just strikes me as so strong, and I think like if this were your first Judge Dredd story, you would think. This is a dystopian future in which this dude's the bad guy, right? Right from the start, yeah. he's kind of positioned in that role. It is, it's interesting, because and you say about the sequels, um, you know, in, in fact, well, I'll, I'll give an overview of the story in a moment, but um, in the sequels, we get to learn more of, you know, how the, the impact of this story progresses. Um, in later issues, you sort of... Um, I don't want to spoil. I am going to spoil it. There is a, there is a child uh, as a result of um, of this story. There was, you know, the characters in this story have a child, and she eventually becomes a judge. She ends she she ends up going at the age of five. She gets entered into the academy of law, and she ends up becoming a judge. And just through really happenstance, uh, well, while she's a cadet, she is um, assessed by Judge Dredd. And again, to him, it's like, it's just another assessment, you know. Um, I know what, he, he almost has this sort of, such faith in the academy and the law that she's like, he's like, well, I don't care where you came from, you've gone through the, you know, you spent 10 years in the academy, you're a judge, if you screw this up, it's not because of who you were, it's because of, you know, your poor education, you know, you haven't taken on the education. And it's, again, to him, it's almost meaningless, this thing. It's, as I keep going back to, this whole event is just another sort of day in the office. It's just another, you know, taking down more perps. Yeah, and I think in that in that cadet story, which is, you know, there's the America 2 uh, sequel, and then the, the third one is the cadet story. Yeah. Um, and, and in that cadet story, I think that's the first time you know, uh, in these three stories that really dread you know, questions anything, where I, I like the idea that uh, um, America, too, is sort of the daughter from America, is mm. sort of um, it, trying to change stuff from within the system. And Dredd kind of concedes, like, you know, you might have points. I mean, and, and that's a relatively recent story compared to uh, 
Yes, 1990, yeah. Yeah. So, and it, I mean, by Dad, he's kind of questioning it, and I know he was questioning it a little in the background in, in other stories. And it has grown, and again, that's the continuity. Like, Judge Dredd's arc it ha- isn't like one story. It, it's been over, um, well, since 1977. So, you know, you're looking at 40 years of continuity um, in which he has aged and grown, and, you know... Um, he has had pause to even, you know, question some of his acts that he's done in the past. I can't remember the story, um, but I was flicking through some other some other stuff, and um, there's even stories where he actually will go back and he questions like decisions he's made about things that happened in like the Apocalypse War. You know, there's a moment where he literally turns the nuclear weapons and, and eradicates um, the enemy, which is the the Russians, uh, for instance, is technically the Russians. So East Meg One is obliterated. Um, and he makes that decision to eradicate like millions of people, um, and for years after that, it's sort of like it's just I, I did it. It was the best decision to make. And then, like you say, I remember just reading it. It was in the early two thousands. There's a story where he does sort of like you say he concedes that it was an incredibly, um, you know, severe response, really. <laughs> right. And you're just like, oh, I'm kind of responsible for genocide. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, but it's it's not a big revelation where he doesn't collapse and you know fall to his knees and cry or or call out. But and that's why I find Judge Dredd so fascinating that even those little minor concessions are huge, really. Um, yeah. Well, we, one thing that I that struck me reading these stories is that you know I mean I I have some of the same sort of like shock. Uh, you know, it's impossible to read these and not. You know, see Dredd as the bad guy, but especially, especially in America too, and, and as the story goes on, um, you know, you uh, you do see Dredd's point of view, mm. um, where you get more of his interior space, and there were times where I thought, um, you know, I feel very ambivalent reading this about, you know, I don't read this and say one guy's right, one guy's wrong. Um, and I think that's something that John Wagner does well. I mean, it, 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 maybe you have to grow up a little to see that Dredd is, you know, a fascist and, and kind of, uh, you know, not somebody inclined to uh, introspection, yeah. um, even though you're talking about him becoming a little introspective. But, um, you know, it, maybe it takes a while to see that. But one of the things that I think John Wagner does so well is kind of giving you those multiple perspectives and multiple people to identify with. And that's true in, in other stories, too. Like, you know, I mean, it, it's hard not to see Chopper as, you know, somebody you identify with who's kind of railroaded by society. Mm. But you still like Judge Dredd. I mean, you still yeah. have some identification with him. Yeah, no, true, and that's it. And that's one of the great things of, of um, you know, in the characters. There are, there are, he is surrounded by supporting characters that sort of have almost forced him um, to uh, question those things. Um, you know, you you talk about Chopper, who is the anarchist. You know, the sort of sky surfer that you know uh, has cropped up a couple of times and. You know, in that idea of like the freedom to do and just you know, it's not harming anyone. Just you know, these laws are so sort of like severe and autocratic, it's ridiculous. But it's not just without external to the justice um, 
you know the the uh, judge system it's internal as well because there are characters like uh, Judge Anderson who uh, you know at one point in the mid 90s like literally hands in her badge because she sort of loses faith in the system and goes go, goes off into space to find right. question you know to find the answers to so much and that's another you know that and that's it like you know that everything that happens to her is still in continuity she goes off into space and she speaks to aliens and to, to you know it's almost like celestial beings i think in one story um being a psychic judge and it's still that thing of like when she she comes back and with a different focus and she's one of the ones that's that sort of helped i don't want to say soften dread because i don't think yeah. he's ever, i don't think he's ever going to be soft but you know, she she adds another depth to that. That you know, like you say, he, Dread can be a two-dimensional character when written, you know, okay to poorly. Um, but it's hard to make the world of Judge Dread two-dimensional because there is so much and so many fascinating characters in it that you know it's a, it's a real tapestry that you can tap into. Yeah, and I, I'm a huge, I just have to say, I'm a huge Josette Anderson fan. And mm. I, I think that, you know, especially around, like, Shambhala and mm. Ed Graham, when they were really doing the longer Anderson stories for the first time. Um, and, and, and that is, I'm still blown away by the art of those stories. Yeah. Um, you know, Ridgeway is so amazing. Um, and, and also, you know, the pain, because she's dealing with the, the loss of her friend in Shambhala, which had happened a few years earlier in the comic, um, actually, I think it was in an annual, mm. um, you know, that's that, that great one with the whale, the last whale song. Uh, it's incredible. You know, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a one-off. It's in, it's a, it's in a, a winter special that I think I've, still, I've got somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, she kills herself, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I've been through that as far as losing somebody and, um, you know, framing a story around that was so amazing to me. Um, so, I mean, you know, and I, I always think of Dread as the sort of straight, you know, macho guy, and the best Dread stories are sort of like very action-packed, and the best Anderson stories are sort of introspective, but obviously things like America break that, you know, uh, silly dichotomy for me. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. There's uh, it's it's interesting because I, I think that's what it stands out as well because it does something different with dread. I mean, you you know this you you read this and you it's a bit. It's not. It has hints of that. You know the action and stuff, and you you know especially because this 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 happened over somebody's lifetime. That you know the start of the book, those first two opening panels are um, you know. I don't say present day, but in that moment in continuity, and the end of the story is in that moment in continuity. But the, you know, ninety-five percent of the story is actually leading up to that. Is that sort of story of how um, this young girl, America, um, is it Jara Java? I've lost the page. I notes. Is yeah, born. Java. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it starts. It sort of goes into her birth. How her parents have, um, you know, they they uh, immigrated to. Um, what they thought was still America, but obviously you know it's the mega cities, um, and how they have hope, and you know that this is this this still the American dream, and it sort of talks about this whole idea of, and it's, again it's really like quite prevalent and and sort of relevant to today, this idea of searching for the American dream and and it being shattered by by the by the system that it you know you 
that you hope is there to protect you and to save you, but actually sort of tries to beat you into line. Yeah, so I mean, I, here's so here's my question. I mean, one of the things that's always perplexed me about about Judge Dredd is this is probably the most iconic uh, British superhero or comic hero, mm. um, and he's set in America, right? Yeah. So, so speaking as like a, a dumb Yank, um, you know, he's set in my country, but he's not produced in my country, which is a little strange, and. You know, I always tell, um, I teach French, and I, I always tell my students, like, about how Taken and some movies like that were made by French companies, and mm. they kind of reflect, like, how uh, the French see America, right? You know, we're, we love to torture people. We love heroes that torture people. He's a tough guy. Um, it's really not a very flattering depiction, um, but... It was a big hit over here, so obviously yeah. they got it right. Um, you know, and so, I mean, just reading the story as an American, I mean, like that tension between the American dream and the American reality, that is something that is just hardwired into our DNA. And I think in, in some senses we are fortunate to have that dream because, you know, the good side of that dream is that it saves us. It inspires us to do better uh, at those juncture points, at those times where we're not living up to our values, and we never have been, mm. but we can do better. Uh, you know, this idea of a more perfect union, and I think that um, it, is, it is hard for me to understand other nationalities as not bound up in a set of ideals and in a set of uh, values that um, you know other nations have pride and have an awareness of their history, but um, don't necessarily have that same like this is an ideological state kind of thing. Yeah. You know, in, unless you were like say the Soviet Union, you know. Well, don't forget. I mean, the thing that I think there's the you know uh, Judge Dredd, um, you know, originally. Uh, created and, and, and released in, in 1977, so you sort of look at the hit, the height of the Cold War, really. Um, so that ideology is there um, in him, in that sort of American ideal. And also the thing to remember is that John Wagner is um, an American, uh, you know, obviously living in Britain now. So he, he obviously has that background as well. Um, I, I, it is, I think you're right. I think there's that, there's a thing in in, in Britain. Now it happens. It's it's funny actually because someone actually said this to me the other day. We were watching a film, and it was an American idea of Britain, um, and it was very much sort of like you know uh, tea scones and how you doing, mate? You all right? Kind of sort of like happy Cockney kind of thing. And you do sort of roll you do sort of roll your eyes at it, and you go, oh, it's you know it's that sort of thing, and it's. It's less. Pre it's less. It happens less now. But if you look back, it's sort of like you know, films like Three Men and a Little Lady is you know probably the worst case I always think of. But um, there is that thing, and but it's the same the other way around. Like you know, the Brits think of Americans in a certain way, and Judge Dredd is akin to um, Dirty Harry. You know, it's it's just, yeah, and that's that's sort of how he was pitched originally. Is that sort of like he he's. Um, a good cop doing a good job, but he's not necessarily a good guy. 
Um, and you know, while she had, oh, go on. And, and that was really, you know, that was a whole trope, especially in the late seventies and beginning of the eighties, and it, it carries on forward into like RoboCop. You know, this idea of, um, you know, obviously in the eighties we were dealing with like crack, which was you know uh, described in our our newspapers as an epidemic, mm. and there really was heightened violence. And there was this kind of fascistic urge to turn to a kind of Dirty Harry or Robocop kind of figure. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of that came out in Reagan, and, and some of that we're still seeing now, you know, with Trump. I mean, some of that same kind of talk of strength, of order. Um, certainly, you know, those strains go back to Nixon, you know, who, who pioneered the sort of law and order mentality. Um but, but that, you know, like you see it in, in the story, the Judge Dredd story, America, you know, both in America's Parents and in that scene where you're at the Academy and, you know, they're talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Mm. Um, you know, like there is this way in which the American dream, you know, is a kind of double-edged sword that it can inspire us to you know, make right with black folks in the 60s, you know, mm. or gay folks in the 2000s. But it can also be a kind of, like, rhetorical padding that insulates us from how terrible things really are. And whether you're talking about concentration camps for people coming over the border, or you're talking about, um, you know, people, you know, not having health care and dying of preventable diseases. I mean, just horrible things that should not be happening in an industrialized state. I sometimes see the way in which this rhetoric, which, you know, can you see in the story, kind of, you know, acts as a protection, acts as a way of us not seeing how bad things really are. Uh, because, you know, you can say, well, that's messed up. I don't like the judge system. But we're still, you know, uh, like liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I'll say the interesting thing about the story, um, you know, the the whole thing does centre around this idea of liberty and freedom. And one of the, the odd things that sort of it really only struck me reading it this time is the story's told from Bennett Beanie's point of view. And he says that, you know, that he and America... Like literally started in the same place. They, they're a couple of months, you know, in, uh, different in age. They were ro- both raised in Frederick Nietzsche block, which I think is a nice touch. Um, and, and and the story is that at some point she she sees the system. Like even as a child, like there's there's actually in the in the story there's an interaction with the judge, uh, not dread, but a, a different judge when they're very young. And uh, Beanie Bennett Beanie is is bullied. And a judge stands up to him and says, you know, are you a troublemaker? Is it, is it your fault? And, you know, Bennett sort of says, no, you know, this is this is this way, this is the way the system works. And, you know, it's uh, America actually describes him like he was a bad man. She describes the yeah. judge as like, you know, just don't, don't worry about it, he was a bad man. And it's at that moment I see that the, their story starts to diverge. That she goes off and she starts growing, she questions and challenges the system... And eventually, that leads to her death. Whilst Bennett, with you know, with some slight, you know, he's got a talent. He can play musical instruments. He seems to be quite funny. The comedy, he's got a comedy gig. He grows up to become a, a huge success. Yeah, 
and so I get this thing of like these are two parallels that really you know you know he he is the American dream that idea really is he come he came out no he's come out of one of the slum blocks from an immigrant block um, to become to, to to live in a house like with a with a garden and trees in in a mega city that's something you know incredible so he achieves it and it wasn't in this time I was actually actually. You know, you, you we're follow, we're being sort of told to follow uh, Amy's story as a, as a tragedy, but actually, this also slipped in there is the idea that actually, if you if you could still make it, there is still that little bit of hope, um, and it almost sort of you know it's, it makes the ending even more tragic, really. That you know, there there are other ways, really. You could survive in this city, and there are other ways of doing things. Right, and and I think that I mean, so much of it comes back to their character. That you know, the price you pay for that success, and I, and I do kind of have mixed feelings about that because I, you know, I like that juxtaposition, but I also think that you know, the reality of America is not that you know you can succeed with a hundred percent certainty mm. with hard work, you know. And that is kind of reflected. I mean, he gets his his, his throat shot out. Um, yeah. You know, so so maybe that is in there. But you know, so I have kind of ambivalent feelings about how Chris that dichotomy is. But the price you pay for that is making your peace with the injustice around you, mm. uh, with what's been done to America, quite literally, uh, to this character. Uh, you have to kind of shut up and, and quiet that part of yourself to have that success. And if you can't shut that off, you are on a path that's going to take you to the outside and to to death, ultimately, yeah. uh, in the case of America. Well, you're right. I mean, again, I think, you know, I'm just looking at one of the panels here in the, in, 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 in the original story, uh, when Bennett makes it, and he actually says, he says, um, he talks about when he first makes it, you know, he makes it big, he sells some of his songs, and he becomes like a real celebrity. He says, after that I was made, money started pouring in. I bought a big NIMBY unit on the Ridley estate, electric walls to keep out Joe sit, droid servants, my own anti-grav pool, a real garden for God's sake. So he's like made it, but within that, there is that thing of like where he's come from, it's that uh, he's got electric walls to keep out Joe Citizen. So basically, he, like you say, he has separated himself out and like you say, allowed himself to be cut off from that, the harsher reality of what Mega City actually is and what America has become. Yeah, and he, and he says on that page, I've been right, you could play it by the rules and have a good life, you know? Yeah. It's sort of, you know, contrast. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's very American too. Like, you know, um, especially post-suburbs, you know, this idea of kind of white flight that, you know, what what we did was set up these, um, you know, gated communities where, you know, you you have more space, you have a lawn, you have mm. these things that were not available in the city, but then you have this paranoia that's like, I've got to protect myself from Joe Sid, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like I say he he becomes like you say he you know like you say, he pays for it in the end, um, and he, you know he, he loses his he gets shot in the throat, loses his ability to sing, um, 
but he still seems to like even after that he still believes in the system he, he doesn't want to give up America as in sorry Amy the character um, and it's only at the end you sort of realise that he's made a decision to that he thinks the best is to uh, Amy has now become a part of Total War uh, this democ- democratic terrorist or pressure group um, and they're going to make a demonstration uh, by blowing up the Statue of Liberty to show that there is no liberty in the city anymore and he does. He he rats her out, and uh, he t- he goes to the judges, but he, he never gives her name. But he just says this event is going to happen, um, you know, and uh, and that's how. And then that, it sort of circles back round then because they they are they're about to try and blow up the Statue of Liberty, and the judges are waiting for them. And um, you know, despite what the the judges have promised, um, Ami gets killed. And yeah. it's, it's it, you know then it's sort of like you realise the whole story is about him retelling what you know that he he feels that he is to blame for this whole thing really he could have prevented it at any point during her life like he could have interceded in some other way but do you think that's the case or do you think this is almost like a this was always going to be the ending? Well, it does feel kind of inevitable. I mean, you know, he could have, I guess imprisoned her when she comes to visit him uh, and there's that moment uh, where he does ask her to stay and she says I can't you know I mean it's tempting but and I quite like that moment Um, sort of it's tempting but I could not forget this injustice I couldn't tune this out Uh, I have that personality that can't ignore this Mm. Um, but you know I think that uh, Beanie isn't coming from a place of ideological adherence to the judges. He's just essentially a coward. I mean, he can say, I've been right, but, you know, one of the most painful um, panels for me is actually a, a few pages earlier when, uh, you know, they're sort of going into adolescence and, you know, drifting apart. And, um, uh, Benny is kind of, Beanie is sort of narrating, and he says, somewhere along the way, childhood ended, and me and I were drifting apart. I watched the happening, hating it, powerless to prevent it. And then he says, oh, me, coward that I am, I'd have joined the damn damn if it meant I could have had you. Yeah. I'd have marched with you and fought with you and died with you. Um, you know, that way in which, you know, that's very uh, poignant to me, that, that way in which that love for her, would have uh, overwhelmed any of the nascent ideology in his head. Um, you know, that's his consolation prize. Mm. Um, and, and I think that, for me, that's, that's part of the way that the story works emotionally, that, you know, I mean, it says right after that, as intro pages, you know, this is a love story. Um, you know, that that way in which, you know, there's a, there's a way in which we kind of, like, never get over our, our childhood crutches, you know? Mm. Um, I was watching, uh, you know, I just finished uh, season two of Stranger Things, and at the end, you know, all these kids are kind of, like, at the dance, and they're all pairing up, and it's supposed to be, like, a happy ending, and I found it very painful, actually, um, it, because... You know, there's this kind of idea in our fiction uh, of 
you know, sort of having somebody who was the one or having somebody who, you know, you know, was your childhood crush who grew up and you got married and, you know, knew yeah. you from that time, knew when you were that scared kid being harassed by the judges and loved you anyway. And, you know, I think ultimately that's a, that's a kind of damaging, painful thing that we have put out there to, to make people have these expectations. But, but in the story, America, that sense of how it all comes back to his love for her. And, and obviously it goes in a weird direction of kind of mm-hmm. taking over her body uh, at the end. But um, that sense of like all of the wealth in the world is a kind of consolation prize. And that's there in Gatsby too, right? Yeah. That's, you know, like all that wealth is my consolation prize for not having Daisy. Yeah. It is very much that, isn't it? Like you say, he he has everything. He, like you said, he's able to make have a, get a good life by playing by their rules. But like you say, he doesn't actually get pretty much like the one thing he truly wants, that thing that would make him truly happy. And uh, and then, like you say, he is um, pretty much the instigator of her death um, in doing what he thinks is is the right thing. So it's. Uh, it is. It's a true tragedy. It's you know. This is. I can see that the so. This is why it's so much. This. This is why it's become iconic. That it's actually taken on, um, you know, this status as a as such a a high profile Judge Dread story. Um, but again, like you say, it yeah. has that twist at the at the end where it goes in some quite odd places, as all these stories always do. And uh, it. it, it <laughs> Um, that yeah, it, you know, so it does. It does results in in America's death, and uh, he then, you know, he's been shot in the throat, can't sing anymore. So he actually uses his wealth to have a full body transplant, so that his brain and and of the obviously everything personality now exists in her body, and without again, like in, you know, that that I can see that you know Wagner writing this in nineteen ninety or whatever. Um, it's a it's a slightly twisted ending, a little bit you know um, dark, you know. But in this day and age now, you know, reading in two thousand eighteen, there's um, it becomes a little bit more obsessive and a bit more uh, pos- yeah. po- pos- possessive to to an almost sort of you know a real creepy level, um, and it gets worse. It gets worse in the future stories for me now, having read them again. That he does things that he thinks are sort of like a. Uh, basically, he he takes it before he had a body transplant. He took a, a, a sample of his own sperm and then mix and then impregnates himself as as America, which is it's even hard to explain, in order to have a child. So he not only has now taken possession of her body. He's taken possession of her reproductive system in order to have a child with his former self. It's, it's so twisted. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But it, it's, it's yeah. I, and I don't know how I felt about that, about reading it back. I was like, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about this in this day and age. Yeah, I had the same thoughts. I mean, for me, it kind of goes sideways on those issues at the end of, you know, the first America story, yeah. um, where I'm thinking, like, is this a, is, is this a trans story now? Like, yeah. you know, there's no indication that, that he 
celebrity was a woman, and that's why he's doing this. Um, it's just like you say, a kind of like creepy possessiveness. And and my reading of the impregnation in in the second one was, was actually darker. Was that he essentially raped America's comatose body prior to taking over her body? Um, yeah. That, that was the way I read it. It can be read that way. I, I actually had to, because again, like you say, there's a, there's a couple of panels in um, um, in the second story. And it, it, it's, I'll just read a bit. It says, uh, Before I had my brain implanted in America's skull, I impregnated her. And that's it. That's what it says. Call it sick, call it what you like. It wasn't like that. I was crazed with grief. I felt I could somehow recreate her, bring her back, make good all the hurt I'd caused her. And at no point does it go beyond that. Does it explain that? I had to go to, uh, I didn't, I just Googled a couple of things on this. And it was on a 2000 AD uh, forum that someone had, had, had said, oh, no, no, no. It was, and it was administrative. It was from someone from, I assume, like 2008 office. Oh no, no, it was a, it was. This was the process. He took a sample of his sperm, and you know, then impregnated the body, <laughs> uh, and then that's what's on Wiki. That's what's on Wikipedia is that explanation. But you're right. Okay. And it, so I, but I agree. When it actually says I was crazed with grief, it's not. It's no. It's not sick. I was crazed with grief. And the, the panel itself just shows him looking down on her dying body. So, yeah, vulnerable, it, unconscious. <laughs> it can you be. Know. It really can be read in that way that you know that he took advantage well, I, of her. Well, I, I mean that's the way that I read it. Yeah. Um, but but then later on, there's a, a scene where he's in her body and he's gang raped, and yeah. the whole issue was kind of you know. A judge looks on and, and saw the whole thing and obviously could have stopped this earlier. Um, and Judge Dredd, you know, disciplines that judge and, you know, makes a show of, you know, apologizing and all of this, which is rare for Dredd yeah. uh, and nice. But, you know, I think the, like, is this a trans story or is it just, does it not know it's a trans story? And then the rapey stuff that, that's creepy is where it all kind of, you know, goes a little sideways for me. But but I do like the, the creepiness, like, is inherent in the original obsession, right? I oh, mean, yeah. There is a kind of, like, nice guy creepiness, like, I love you so much, I'm going to fund a terrorist act just because I love you, and then turn you in. Um, I mean, he definitely... Um, you know, there is that way in which, like, uh, one, of, one of my best female friends, like, says... The guys I'm scared of are the nice guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, those are the scary ones. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, throughout this, what like you say, that it's um, Beanie is not a mature character. Um, like he, he, oh, yeah. Because at no point, you know, he, he is rich and he was famous, and he, but it's never like he's never had another real relationship. It is, America has always been his, his sort of like, you know, his obsession. Um, and so it's not out of character. It's It sounds like, you know, <laughs> to put it, if it was if he was around today, he would probably be Facebook stalking her, um, <laughs> you know, and following her on Instagram and everything. And do you know what I mean? And that's how it feels. That like you know, it's not out of character. But let's be honest, that character's not probably not the healthiest. Right. Yeah, that is very true. And your point about maturity is, is very well made there. Um, 
And, and, and so I do wonder, like, let's say that she had said yes and stayed with him, either, you know, in sort of uh, adolescence or as an adult when they reconnect. Um, would they really have been happy? Um, you know, maybe they would have been just, you know, I mean, this is a story about sort of the background characters in every other Dread story, right? Mm-hmm. Where this would have just been a, an eight-page, you know, story or, or a two-part story where Dread stops the, the terrorists from destroying the Statue of Liberty, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I do, I do wonder if, you know, there's an alternate version of this story where they become just the unhappy couple living in, you know, a, a block or something. Yeah, no, then that, and that, you know, that's, that's what I think. I think you're right. I think like she, you know, if she'd have made that, that taken that temptation to stay with him that night and not follow up on the act, there would have been that, like you said, the honeymoon period where, you know, nostalgia and, and the romance of it would have carried them through. But her dedication to the cause and her, you know, his, um, his dedication to her would have just, would have, I could see turning sour and turning bitter. And like you say, down the line, it would have become, um, a story of bitterness and, you know, you probably have judges busting in as, as one is killing the other or some, <laughs> some other twisted version of the future. Yeah. Or he's, or he's trying to wear her skin or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, go on. Well, I do wonder about the, you know, going back to the sort of like American dream thing, like if his recompense is, you know, wealth and the mansion and everything else, I mean, you know, I often think that, that, you know, there is this dynamic in America of kind of like, well, you know, yes, there are these things that are not okay. And, you know, one of, one of the jokes that it's kind of a joke that, you know, people say about, you know, why do poor people vote for, uh, you know, Republican mm. trickle down economics? Well, they think they're going to be rich someday. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there is this kind of like, well, that's your recompense. You know, yes, you you live a life of misery, but, you know, uh, maybe someday you'll have that mansion. But it doesn't make him happy. Mm. And I often wonder about kind of, you know, this sort of malaise that we find ourselves in, in sort of the post-industrial world where um, everybody seems so profoundly unhappy. Um, You know, and and, I mean, that's a generalization, uh, obviously, you know, there are recompenses and love and everything else, but, um, you know, having uh, tablets and Skype and, and all these wonderful things, which I can't imagine living without, and refrigerators and air conditioning yeah. and everything else, um, does not seem to increase human happiness. Um, and, you know, sometimes you see people who are, you know, you, you see uh, documentaries or, you know, you see people about who are living in just abject, terrible conditions. Uh, sometimes they're scared of their government. You know, starvation is a real concern, mm. you know. Um, and it's not like they're perfectly happy. It's not some, some you know, like noble savage, uh, you know, um, you know uh, colonial uh, mythos here. But they don't seem to be more unhappy than we are. You know? yeah. um, and, and 
you know, I, I think about people who, you know, who kill themselves and, and who live in conditions that much of the rest of the world would love to have, mm. um, but it did not generate human happiness. I mean, this idea of the pursuit of happiness is so ingrained in that American dream, but then the way it's defined is economically. It's not defined by a healing of the soul. It's not defined by either uh, Beanie healing himself and growing up or, you know, being with the woman he loves. Um, You know, and maybe they're poor, but maybe they'd be happy. Maybe they'd be miserable. Maybe what he needs to do is grow up. But, you know, happiness isn't usually defined as, you know, finding yourself and living on some hippie compound, you know, yeah. it's defined by having that mansion, by these material things, which ultimately are the recompense for promise, but um, even if we achieve them, the world still feels as hollow as it ever did. And I think that's a really good point, and, and, and you know, and again, I think one of the satire that, that uh, elements of, of, of Judge Dredd has been is is that sort of um, that idea of in a future that where you know they have droids, they have hover vehicles, they've got all this amazing technology, you know they've 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 travelled into space and all sorts of things, and they've got all this stuff. The two big things that seem to sort of you know really drive everything um, towards the criminal is boredom, and you know these this, this was it these, these jokers that there's eight hundred million citizens in Mega City One. And only so many jobs. So there's loads of people that clearly, you know, they've, they've managed to sort of like generate some form of universal income. But it's just boredom. You know, there's, they can't seem to fill their time. And that's when you get these strange fads or you get people, um, you know, you get characters like um, you know, the comedy ones of like two-ton Tony Tubbs who wants to become the world's fattest man. You know, we've got the belly wheel and that, that's his ambition because there's nothing else to do. And you know uh, the fads like Otto Sump and his ugly, um, uh, you know the ugly products to make you look hideous because it's something a little different, and it goes to the extreme. But it's that thing again of like, like you say, these technologies that are supposed to make our life easier and, and this other stuff. It's it's clearly leading to um, disassociation and, and boredom and and you know that sort of thing. So it it rings true that yeah, you know you can be given all these things, but you're not you're not can actually find that that happiness that you're searching for yeah so who's right uh you know obviously we both see beanie as uh you know as sort of obsessive and weird and 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 kind of broken um and and not having you know great principles so so he would seem to be ruled out I, i mean in most kind of morality play sort of stories there's a character who's just right yeah and you know, obviously, Judge Dredd stories in general just don't have a character who's, who's right, you know. Um, well, you this know, is, so, well, is one thing, right? I mean, well, this is the thing. One of the things I'm curious about, and it's never really touched on, and it does sort of come up in future stories with Total War, is this this organization, this democratic organization, all they want is the pursuit of liberty and happiness and democracy. But at one point, Dredd actually says, I think it's right at the end, he sort of says... Uh, um, he says, "Yes, I remember America." Um, where is it? Right at the end. Um, he, he said, "He said, there you go. Freedom, power to the people, democracy, the great American dream. 
So don't kid yourself. We tried it before. Believe me, it doesn't work. You can't trust the people. So dream on, creep. But just remember, that's all it is, a dream. America is dead. This is the real world. And it's, it, that's his statement. That's his position. It was a dream. It, you know, it worked. It, we, we tried it. It failed. And the question really then to put on to America in this, this total war or the Democracy Now! movement is, so what's your solution? Because it clearly didn't work before. So what's, what is your solution? And they don't seem to have one other than, oh, no, we need, demo we need democratic rule. Um, and I think in a, in a future ish, in a future story, the, the total war story, there's actually a point where they say, well, it's democracy that actually elected the person, I forget the character's name, but elected the president that actually resulted in the nuclear war, and that nuclear right. war is the fallout of the nuclear war became the justice system. So, d democracy actually resulted in the downfall of America. So, like you say, who's right? you know it failed before do you have a better solution they don't seem to so again like she's she feels like she's fighting on the side of right but she doesn't seem to have a it's an ideology but does she have an idea to work it in practice that's where it seems to fall apart well i mean this touches on a lot of issues for me because um you know obviously uh, de Tocqueville talks about this, you know, the dangers of democracy, that, you know, this is all, you know, very wonderful in America, but there's a downside to letting uh, Hoi Polloi uh, have the reins of the country. Um, you know, and, and that's definitely classic, but mm -hmm. uh, that's there in de Tocqueville. Um, you know, obviously Hitler... Um, while he, you know, didn't get a majority, he rose to power through democratic process. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, we elect an Obama, sometimes we elect a Trump. Uh, you know, I mean, Brexit was put to the people. Um, yeah. You know, the people are, democracy is great when you win, when your side wins. Yeah. And when your side loses, it does not seem so great. And now we have these polls throughout uh, the post-industrial world that show support for democracy as a system at very low numbers. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, mid-century it was, you know, 80-90% considered that it's very important to live in a democracy. And now it's like, you know, 20-30%. Um, you know, I and especially young people, that's falling. It is, um, yeah, yeah. You know, well, and, one of the things I've, there's phrases I've heard and I'd never heard before, and I'm hearing more and more in the last sort of like say uh, four years really, is this idea of voters' remorse. So you know you mentioned Trump and Brexit. Following Brexit, I know I, I personally know people that voted for Brexit, but now are like, yeah, but I didn't think it was going to happen. I just wanted to make a bit of a statement, and you know, well, I wish I hadn't now. But you get you get groups and individuals, you know, let's say Boris Johnson, for example, who clings to that, you know, ignoring this idea of voters' remorse or the true feeling of the people, or um, you know, the pulse or the the protests, and actually they will stick to the statement of, well, no, the people voted for this, so we have to do what the people want. We work for the people, but that what they're doing really is corrupting that message of it was a bit of a cock up. 
Um, we didn't really inform the people correctly. We gave them highlights, headlines, and false information. And now that we've got what we wanted, you know, in that case, the Brexiteers, we are going to cling to that, and we are going to claim that that's exactly what the British people want. And and, and it 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 shows that like, actually democracy is no, nothing more nowadays than the way that you spin it. Well, and I, I followed that in, in British news, and I've seen the same thing here in the States, where, you know, I mean, it used to be the case that if you won a close election, you would invite the other side in, and you would be expected to, uh, that you had less political capital, you had less of a mandate, and you were going to have to govern as a moderate or a centrist. Mm. And, and now that, you know, I mean, that kind of went out the window with, with Bush in 2000, who, you know, you know, only won by the Electoral College and lost the popular vote because of our weird system. And, and now we have a president who won by an, an even lower margin, mm. um, got lucky in the popular vote or, you know, through foreign collusion, and is not governing as a moderate at all. And his administration does the same thing of saying, well, this is the will of the people. Yeah. It's transparently not. I mean, you know, you didn't win the popular vote. Uh, the whole election, you know, was a cock up, uh, you know. Um, and, and yet, you know, this democratic uh, rhetoric is employed in order to achieve just absolutely partisan ends. And it's very parallel to, you know, Boris Johnson, you know, going around just claiming uh, everybody is in favor of a hard Brexit, you know, as if, you know, I mean, that's certainly not anyone I know. No. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting story because, again, you say about the age thing as well, and this is, this is you know, it's, it was, there's a definite age um, gap in the, the, the people that voted for Brexit and those that voted to remain. And I work with this, with some uh, younger guys and, and, and you know women that, that have, have made it abundantly clear that well, I voted to remain. I know every all my friends voted to remain. The age gap, the age representation shows that uh, people under thirty, or whatever, majority voted to remain. But now we're going to have this foisted on us, and we're going to have to deal with it. You know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. What, how, how is that a fair representation of the people that are actually going to have to deal with this? And I feel for the people of Scotland as well. You know, Scotland, did they, uh-huh. they, they voted to remain. But then it's like, yeah, but the rest of the UK voted to leave. So, you know, tough look. And so I do sort of like, you know, feel that there's a nationalist party there. Not right wing, right. There's just a, just a patriotic nationalist party that's like, well, no, Scotland doesn't want this. So can we step out in any way, shape or form? And it just feels like a real, like the spin is being used and the corruption sort of to, to make it something. So the question is, like, you know, to lay the question, you know, is, is Ami right? Is, de- is democracy the right way? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, and, you know, my, my heart breaks for Scotland, um, mm. you know, because Scotland, um, you know, is more liberal than, you know, certainly than England. Yeah. And, you know, they voted to stay. Uh, on the basis of we're stronger together. And yeah. then England essentially voted, you know, all right, well, thanks for indulging us, but we're going to vote exactly the opposite way when it comes to the larger European Union. Mm. And, you know, and then, well, we'll see about another Scottish referendum. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought that was a real betrayal of, 
uh, who saw it was in their interest to have Scotland remain, uh, yet were opposed to uh, uh, the UK remaining in the, the EU economic system. But, yeah, I mean, there were those lines in the Judge Dredd story, America, uh, where it's talking about how, like, I mean, it's an exaggeration of these democratic problems where it talks about how, um, you know, the majority didn't vote for anyone who won. Mm. And by the time, you know, and then you get down to, like, who voted for the winning candidate, and, you know, maybe that's 9 or 10%, and then of those people, the majority of those people have no idea what they voted for, right? Yeah. They were like, you know, I mean, people who, who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, I mean, and... and didn't know, you know, they couldn't list the policy positions of, of Donald Trump to the extent that he is even capable of having any. Um, and similar to, you know, people who voted Brexit as a protest vote. So, you know, there are these kind of like inherent problems with, with democracy that, I mean, in here, you know, you had, um, you know, many of the people I know, probably the majority were in favor of Bernie Sanders. Mm. Uh, you know, that's my politics. I voted for him. But, you know, we didn't get our candidate who was further to the left of Hillary Clinton. And it was hard for a lot of people to swallow that and vote for Hillary Clinton. Now, I mean, I don't mean to uh, insult people who were in favor of Hillary Clinton because I know those people do. And she was not a second choice for a lot of voters. But Having said that, there is, you know, the same thing happened on the Republican side where there were people who were against Trump who, you know, the choice at the end of the day is Trump or Hillary. Um, and so for a big portion of, of people on both sides, neither of these people were, were sterling options. Um, and yet it comes down to this kind of binary vote in which well, here, you know, a majority of people sit out. Um yeah. So does democracy, at least with all of these, you know, mechanisms built into it, at least over here, um, you know, I mean, what, what is the saying like, well, you know, it, it's a terrible system, but it's better than the rest? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like you say, that that's sort of her argument to an extent is, is the Amer- character of America. That's almost her argument is like, well, it's you know, it's it's not perfect, but it's better than this. Um, and whilst I think you know they they portray Judge Dredd as, as being very black and white in this with his opinions, um, the fact of the matter is, when it comes down to it, all he cares about is is you know law and order. Um, and I, I would like to see him. Um, you know, I'd like to see him work in a more liberal. You know, how would they portray him in a more liberal, democratic society? What would he be? Would he be Dirty Harry, or would he become Batman? It's, uh, you know, it's 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 an interesting. If you place that character and you know his his politics into a different um, environment, how would he how he would play out? Well, and maybe that's the end game. I mean, I know that. You know, 2018 is very conscious of the fact that because Dredd's getting older in real time, even though he's a clone, that, you know, he, uh, his story cannot go on forever. I mean, mm. you can always give him robotic limbs 
man out of time. Um, yeah. You know, a man adapted for a, a different environment that really has no place, and and that's sad, but that's also a sign of progress. And that's interesting. I think that, and that's because I think, I mean, that's almost like the you know the idea, the Dirty Harry film sort of deal with that a little bit. Um, that sort of like you know the old sort of war horse that's very used to being a certain way, having to deal with um, more liberal um, ideals and more liberal systems, and dealing with you know I mean, it was the seventies, having to deal with ethnic group partners, whether that be uh, one of Latino descent or a woman. You know he, he has to deal with those things, and it's sort of like his how he deals with it. And then also I suppose they deal with that with James Bond as well. In you know the early in the um, early nineties. Uh, with the Pierce Brosnan years, they you know, they explained to him then, or you were, they actually say to him, "Well, you're a dinosaur of the of the Cold War era. The world has changed and moved on. You know, you, we need to see a, another way of using you." And you maybe you're right. Maybe that's that would actually be a really fascinating way of of um, progressing the dread character to actually say to him, "You know, well, actually, yeah, the the justice system failed as well." And uh, so, we, you know, this is the future. This is the takeover, this democratic society, and you've got to work within it. It'd be interesting to see, especially, you know, as, as Dread, m- more than any real mainstream comic that I can think of, really, is, you know, represents and, and uh, satirises modern politics. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the things that I, I think about about America and, and that, that movement, I mean, which is, after all, named Total War, yeah. is the role of violence. And, you know, I mean, this seems to be something that comes up in, in all of this talk of social movements and, and revolution. Um, you know, and you do see uh, America in the story mow down some judges. You know, mm-hmm. she's killed four or six judges. And, you know, there's a splash page of just a dead judge, you know. Yes. Um, and so, I mean... You know, I I wonder about this because it seems like, you know, that is probably the major thing that would cause me, and I'm guessing most readers, from reading this and saying, yeah, and me is right in the story. Um, you know, this is good. This is something that's necessary. There's also, you know, blowing up the Statue of Liberty is, you know, arguably hollow symbolism, not mm. a good, you know, you know, not a good strategy, but... Um, but it's mostly the violence, and I and I think, you know, I think about that, and I think about the the role of violence and, and how we understand it. Now, it's true that, you know, I mean, she alleges that the judges have planted violent people in the crowd. I was and, going to ask about that actually, because yeah, because you say about the violence, and she talks about a a peaceful. Um, democratic march of 16 million people, which you know is, is sounds huge, but this is obviously a mega city of 800 million. That then agitators sort of uh, threw stones at judges, caused issues, and she says they were they were crawling for no violence, and the judges actually made it worse. And she was taken, and it, it, it in, in a couple of panels, it really sort of it, it echoed like V for Vendetta for me, you know that. Um, uh-huh. Evie's sort of story that you know that thing of being taken and and head shaven and she gets her baby taken away and um and, and the, the judges tell her that the baby actually had some form of, of, of radioactive mutation you know and so uh-huh. was put down and like I say she says that and she tells this story but again I I don't know how much 
stock I can put in that story. Like it's, it's, right. it, it's laid out as if it's fact. It's laid out to be fact. But then, like you say, she goes on to to you know she, she the, 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 she's telling um, Beanie the story of what happened in order to get money out of him in order to fund an attack on uh, the Statue of Liberty. So again, spin is this is it her just just spinning a story to get his sympathy to really get him on board to give or is it fact? It's yeah, I don't know, and it, it, but it seems to me that it's a key question because. I, I didn't read it as fact. I, I, mm. I read it as like, you know, somebody as somebody who followed Judge Dredd and read a lot of Judge Dredd, it's like, wait a minute. You know, we haven't seen those kinds of tactics going on in those stories. Yeah. And, you know, they definitely are heavy-handed. They definitely are a surveillance state. But, you know, we haven't seen that employed. And you think that if Dredd were aware of that, I mean, Dredd is definitely, you know, you've got the chief judge and, you know, various chief judges in a lot of these stories. You discover, you know, uh, machinations going on. You'd think that you would have seen some indication that the judges are doing this. Yeah. And, and, and so I doubt that, but it makes me think, like, well, if this is true, uh, and, and also another reason to doubt it is that she's gunning down judges, right? Mm. So. You know, I mean, is she really committed to a peaceful movement? But, you know, I guess that was earlier, and the the point is that force is the only language that the judges understand. And I'm certainly sympathetic to that. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, if, you know, while I certainly don't, you know, endorse violence as a tactic, I wonder that, you know, if the kind of way in which we're socialized to be repelled by a movement because of, you know, a few kids throwing stones at judges or at cops in the real world, um, you know, who usually don't represent the the bulk of the protesters, Mm. um, or we're opposed to, you know, some of the violence of, you know, the, the... you know, groups of the 70s and things like that, if that kind of knee-jerk reaction against violence isn't also part of the, you know, American dream sort of, you know, wrapping that we've been inculcated in to preserve the status quo. Because that's that's definitely the thing that makes me hesitate to say, yeah, and he is right here. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and that's a good, I mean, that's a good the good point. This it drives that thing, and you know, and let's not forget as well that um, this is all relative as well. In in the, you know, this isn't um, this isn't a modern day um, situation. Is in like you know, this isn't sort of like you know, like you say, urban, suburban, and and rural sprawl. Uh, you know, with people living in different types. This is sort of like eight hundred million people living in. A close, compact, high-rise city with minimal jobs and you know not a great deal to do. That you think, oh well, you know, again, would a democratic system work in such a um, boilerplate of you know social um, pressure? You know, like you say, if you were to have that and, re- and remove that 
police state, you you could just end up with complete anarchy, really. So you know, are the judges really just keeping a lid on on um, an explosive situation? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to imagine. Certainly, the average citizen in in Mega City One, who's probably not, it's fair to say, it's not depicted as especially bright or with it. You know, mm. I mean, they watch television. They're involved in fads. I mean, you know, of course, we see a lot of criminals. You know, who have cockamamie schemes. I mean, it's hard to imagine them voting as a, as a functional democracy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Um, but I do think about this, I do think about the violence issue, and I don't know how you oppose the judges uh, without using violence. I mean, their whole worldview is violent, but we've been programmed to see, like, if Judge Dredd guns somebody down, um, you know, that is okay, but if a terrorist guns somebody down, that's violence and that makes their cause uh, impossible, you know, to endorse. It, um, well, what's the difference? One's got a badge. Um, well, actually saying that, so th- this was actually, it's really funny that you, that you say that, because, so again, reading this this time, one of the things that sort of struck me was, like, this... This situation in Mega City One, it kept ringing, like, especially in this, the America story. It, it rang a bell. It was itching something in the back of my head, and I couldn't think what it was at first. And it wasn't until I was sort of, um, I was off doing something completely different, and my subconscious had clearly picked up on it. And it's the Zimbardo prison experiment. Um, and if you know about it, where a bunch of students were put into a faux prison scenario in in a college. Uh, six were chosen. I think it's, I think it's six. Six were chosen as prisoners, and, a, and and I think four were chosen as guards. And the guards were given uh, full guards uniform, you know, so uh, shirt, tie, guards, whatever, big belt, and most importantly, like reflective sunglasses. And then the prisoners were given uh, orange jumpsuits, nothing more, prisoner garb. And then they were just given simple instructions. The guards were given instructions, and they were told to guard and guard and maintain the welfare of the prisoners. And over time. Uh, the, the power dynamic shifted and it had to be stopped because the guards started to use more and more brutal tactics because they came from a, a position of authority or they felt at least they, they, there was no authority, it was a complete you know farce, but they felt that they were coming from a, a position of authority and in my head I had that thing again as you say that the judges the design of the judges isn't um, a coincidence you know they mm-hmm. have that helmet with the with the the you know the gold badge on the front, the the bright red trim around uh, the visor, and the visor that covers half the face is reflective. You know they've got the shoulder pads, one of them representing the eagle, associating obviously you know with the justice and and that sort of thing, which makes their figure bigger. They've got the pads and all this other stuff, and they've got the nightstick, the lawgiver, the whole thing, and then they're all wearing the same uniform, the identical uniform. They are a figure of authority and, and you know, of power. Um, and it is that submission within Mega City of, like, they are just the authority. There's that sort of Zimbardo effect of people sort of bowing down to that because they are seen as that intimidating uh, figure of authority. But then as readers, do we have the same thing? Because they are in a uniform and we are told 
that actually they are in a figure they are in a position of authority because they have a uniform and you know dread is portrayed as a hero then all of his actions are actually you know we we almost subconsciously automatically accept as being uh, right or preferential yeah and i think that that comes that gets at like what i see in a lot of superhero narratives that you know or or action narratives that the protagonist often does some pretty terrible stuff mm. um and some pretty ethically questionable stuff but you know especially in movies because unlike you know comics are on the printed page so you control the page and you have more time to sort of you know you can kind of pause between panels and realize like well that guy was surrendering in america uh judge dread didn't have to order you know that they every you know the free fire zone yeah um you know whereas you know in, in, in movies you know you have less control and you're sort of programmed to see well this is a protagonist i identify with him he's the authority figure as you say with uh, the prison experiment um you know and, and the same thing is true of uh you know the other great experiment like that is the the um uh, those torture experiments where people electrocute somebody uh to the maximum setting um uh because somebody told them to do so in a coat yeah. Um, you know, there is both this kind of like acceptance of authority that seems to be programmed into us, but also in the prison experiments, like the way in which that corrupts so quickly. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, I, I mean, it seems like, you know, I mean, if you can't have power in that system, you know, if you benefit from the system, are mammalian minds are just so biased toward authority and toward our own advantage that it's very hard to disentangle that and get out of those biases to see what dread is doing not just in this story but but even more so in the other stories as as bad as he seems to really be mm. yeah it's interesting i think i think they say so and that's almost you know, as you read, all, not just this, but all the the dread stories. Like you say, it's that question of: Am I really following the the story of the good guy, or you know? And, and I'm I'm hoping that I say, you know, well, I think this 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 story, America, and and, and its sequels to some extent, drive that uh, discussion that like, you know that you and I have had. That's really hard to come to a, a conclusion. Um, but I like the I like the idea that that dread. You know, and, and there are others in 2008, but none so much as Dread acts as almost like that mirror again to sort of like, you know, it forces you to ask the questions really about some of the characters and some of the situations that you've probably rooted for, for, you know, for um, such a long time. I mean, it, it's an interesting one that someone actually asked me the question. I was talking about comics again, and they were talking about war comics. Um, you know, like there was a, a series called Commando. Um, you know, they were sold in little digests and stuff, and uh, and then you get other sort of similar stories now. And they were sort of like, what, what? How come they were so popular? I was like, well, I don't know, really. It's interesting considering that you know when they were produced, sort of post World War Two through to sort of the seventies and eighties. It's an interesting concept that 
for a period of, of our history that was actually incredibly full of conflict, that, that war comics and, you know, um, were incredibly popular. But then again, you look and go, well, actually, because the stories are about our soldiers, whether it be American or British or whatever, in, you know, fighting an enemy that's actually been deemed an enemy because we're at war with them. And so it's sort of, like, you know, you're reading those stories. And so you're given license and permission, really, to um, take some sort of thrill or some sort of entertainment from um, an act that when you see, you could see exactly the same act on the news. And again, you'd be like, oh my God, that's a little bit, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But because it's in, in, in comic entertainment, it seems to be like you're given that permission to accept it as entertainment rather than have it focus back and make you ask those questions. And I think, but I think Dread starts to do that of saying, actually, this isn't all right. <laughs> you know, really think about this, that this character actually isn't all right. And you should really start to think about, um, you know, should you really be rooting for this? You know, and, and uh, that sort of thing. That may be, yeah, that may be the best thing that could ever be said about Dread and, and, and certainly about the story is that it kind of uh, trains you or, or disentangles that fascistic impulse in our brains to, to go with the person with authority. Mm. Um, you know, I was having a conversation uh, the other day uh, with, you know, somebody else who shares my political views. And, you know, we were talking about problems on the left that, you know, um, I, we know people on the left who just think every cop is bad, you know? Yeah. And that's not our perspective at all. Um, and there is a kind of like, you know, in some sort of like leftist or politically correct circles, there is some kind of um, dehumanization of the enemy that, or of your political opponents that occurs that mirrors what goes on on the right. And, and I think, you know, we were talking about how, um, you know, uh, I was thinking as you were talking about Inglorious Bastards and what it presents as sort of um, the end of violence. And, and, and there are people who watch that movie and say, uh, yeah, it's just killing Nazis, you know, killing Nazis, you know, that, mm. that's fun. And, and I have no doubt that that is a necessary and good thing uh, on the whole. Having said that, uh, you see the, the bitterness, the, you know, the, the level of destruction, uh, you know, the putting out fire with gasoline concept of just sort of, you know, this is, there's nothing good here. Nobody is a good guy. Um, you know, you can read that movie in, in that different way, and I definitely do. Um, and I think that what I was getting at with my friend is like the importance of even when you have an enemy, even whether it's a political enemy or it's in wartime, uh, acknowledging and accepting the fullness of their humanity, that, that they are troubled, they are in a place where this made sense to them. And it may be necessary, certainly in a time of war, to kill that person uh, if I can. Mm. Having said that, I can hold that view in my mind and still hold the view that we shouldn't drag Hector around the walls of the city, that there is a dignity and there is a humanity to this person 
in a position where I'm forced to, to kill this person. And that humanity is missing in this, from uh, Judge Dredd mm-hmm. and from, you know, usually the, the people, you know, he executes, they're just criminals. And that dehumanizes them in the same way that saying somebody is an illegal dehumanizes them. It makes what we do to them okay. Um, and at the same time, the total war faction dehumanizes the judges and doesn't seem to have room to say, you know, Judge Dredd doesn't see himself as a bad guy. We might have to kill him under certain circumstances, but, but you know, he's not, he is the enemy, but he's not inhuman. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. And it's, it's, again, it becomes all relative, doesn't it? I mean, to take the judges, then they are human. I mean, granted, you know, uh, Dread is a clone, but he's still a he's still a human. But the thing is, he has gone through from the age of like five to twenty. They they go through a, a um a, that's a that's a fifteen year period of indoctrination and training to become a judge. You know where they are sort of like sectioned off from um, society to be trained, and, and they are led to believe certain things, and they go through certain you know. Uh, psychological training and stuff so it's that thing again of saying like yeah they, they are you know harsh and they are brutal and that sort of thing but you know is that who they are is that or is it the fact that they are a product of this 15 years of, of really strict harsh training um you know and, and how does that differentiate them from say like you say soldiers or um other other people have gone through similar situations to then have to go and face a a life and death scenario. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, all those scenes of the training is about that uh, very shedding off of compassion. Mm. Um, you know, some of it is about being good with a gun or, or whatever, but a lot of it is, is being indoctrinated, as you say. And it seems to me that if we have compassion for the criminals of Mega City One, we have to, you know, that we say, well, they're poor, they, you know, they're bored, what, what do they, you know, this made sense to them. Um, and I think we should have that compassion. But we should also have that compassion for the judges mm-hmm. who, you know, who knows what you or I would be like if we were raised under those conditions. Yeah, and again, like you say, because of that, but let's not forget that you know this is it is a future dystopia. This isn't like them driving around London on the back of a law a lawmaster. This is a city where they will be fired upon. Like putting on that judge's uniform also makes put is a target on their back. Um, you know, twenty four seven really. So it's not like they are in a, a safe position as a judge. Yes, they have the authority and stuff, but they are they are facing life and death on a daily basis. Um, I sound like I'm siding with them now, but do you know what I mean? It's not like you say. It's not. That, it's it's not that clear cut. It's it's. They need a level of compassion to say that they are actually trying to keep a lid on a situation that if they weren't there would actually be a thousand times worse, possibly. Right, and there are times where you know, I mean, they're killing mass murderers and serial killers. I mean, you know, I think about the debate about policing, and you know, we need cops. Mm. Uh, you know. We absolutely need cops. Mega City One, you know, I mean, you know, there's this idea that they can't even respond to all the calls about crime. That's a consistent thing in Judge Dredd, that there's so much crime going on, you know, all of these judges can't even, you know, 
Go on. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, the world needs cops. We need cops. It's, it's a dialogue about policing and, and how, you know, how you balance freedom and order mm. uh, to get back to the terms of, of the America story. Yeah, and I think you're right because the thing that sort of, as you said then, you know, about 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 liberty and and you and the other, you need cops. The thing not to to forget as well is is this is a this is a fascist state, and you know the judges are enforcing the law, but they're not just enforcing, you know, what we would consider to be the law. Um, they do do sort of like random raids. You know, sugar is illegal, caffeine is illegal, smoking is illegal, um, alcohol is illegal. Certain other things are illegal. Like there is no avenue for vice or anything like this. So, um, you know, I think like you said, you can get, you can probably get eighteen months in a cube for littering. It's not, it's not a, a a fair balance, is it? So there is that as well. That actually, the justice system itself is incredibly heavy-handed. Um, and so, whilst America is, you know, she is looking for that democratic. Um, solution or that you know the, the way to go back to the democracy it's almost like even if, if she I, I solely believe if they could just see a chip in the system that said all right we acknowledge that there doesn't really need to be a law against these things um you know that then it would probably be a, a bit of a win for them um a bit like judge dread conceding that yeah you know you might have a point with some of this stuff um, the justice right. system conceding that yeah we don't really need to have all these laws um, you know and the judges moving from being becoming a, a force for um, for ju- for judgment and enforcement and actually becoming that sort of like protective protect the protect and going back to the idea of protect and serve rather than you know judge jury and execution are rolled into one right well and I think that you know it reminds me of kind of um, discussions about you know, Giuliani's uh, broken windows policy and, you know, you know, the theory that if you arrest people for jaywalking, uh, you know, you are arresting people who could go on to do other crimes. Mm. And, you know, versus a, a more compassionate approach that says this is not what officers should be spending their time on. But I think that, you know, um, Colin Smith, who, who writes comics criticism, um, I had a conversation with him a few years back in which he was talking about this kind of fascistic impulse. And, and it, it sort of scared me because it made me think that, you know, for all of America's, you know, problematic in, in many cases, you know, exporting democracy and, you know, and uh, the American dream and all of these values, we are also a, a, a people who are inclined to the strong man mm. and are inclined to, you know, that, that macho, dirty, hairy style cop. And, um, and at my most cynical, I would say we're one scare away from throwing away all of our freedom. Uh, and saying that's less important than, you know, having a plane crash into a building. Um, you know, there is this way in which, and you see it in the Dread Stories too, in which, you know, in this balance, part of that balance is our own fear response, a 
our own sort of crime is out of control, we need a Judge Dredd. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like you say, because, you know, um, there's, a, there's a story called Origins, uh, Judge Dredd Origins, which sort of goes into the, you know, as it says, the origins of the judges and how they actually became and stuff. And it is it is that it's that thing of like they were supposed to be like a temporary fix for a for a situation where following a nuclear holocaust, um, you know, the society and government was in complete disarray, and so um, the judges were enacted as a sort of like short term measure. But then things do, didn't get better, so they did, you know they just kept pushing. Okay, we need more laws. We need more. Um, you know, to be more and more strict until it became so bad that, and they've never repealed it really. But yeah, yeah, I was reading an, an early. Um, I have made it through like kind of half of, of origin, but mm. I was rereading uh, an early story in which I think it's kind of like a a, a parody of you know, sort of tree huggers. Uh, you know, where um, you know it's like uh, Father Earth uh, and you know, there's Native American overtones, and they attack Mega City One, and they're just the bad guys to be killed. You know, and you've yeah. seen so many sort of mutie attacks on Mega City One, um, and, and sometimes it's you know uh, like the Apocalypse War or Necropolis, where there's just a clear bad guy. But sometimes there are these other stories where you think. I'm not sure that the guys being mowed down by Judge Dredd are completely wrong here. <laughs> yeah, and it is. It's, it's that thing of like they they they're not exactly the bad guys, but they do threaten that that judicial status quo that the judges represent. Um, and yeah, it is, it is interesting. It's it's one of those things. I think you can you can you know, you can talk around for so long without sort of really, under, you know, understanding it. But, I mean, one of the things I find interesting is, just one last thing, really, before we start to look at wrapping up, is this idea of, well, we say about authority, but this thing about handing it to other people to make it other people's responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. And so having these figures like, um, and this goes through to superhero comics as well, really, as, as a whole, really, but handing this authority to characters like Judge Dredd to say, sort of like, well, it's not my problem, you know, you you handle it. Yeah, crime is crazy. You know, we're dealing with it with uh, intergalactic uh, bounty hunters, or we're dealing with uh, you know muti attacks, or the Joker's on the run again. Whatever it is, handing over that responsibility to say this isn't my problem. You know, I know it's going on, but it's 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 somebody else in authority to deal with it. And I actually quite like the fact that, like you said, they're they're the strong man. They're the person we can look at to say they're going to deal with it and make this right. And I think we as Britain, you know, many, many, you know, a couple of centuries ago, saw, saw ourselves in that um, capacity uh, in both Europe and across the empire. And I think really from the 20th century, I think America stood in as that position as well to say that we are the strong man now. We're the, you know, um, to, to, to quote a, a film, to be the world police. You know, it's sort of... Um, right. And, and really, that's that's what you know. That's the thing. Now, it's like Judge Dredd does represent that thing, that authority to be like for the citizens to go. Yeah, it's crap, but it's not my problem to deal with. You know, there'll be a judge along in a few minutes to deal with this. And I wonder how much of that is still. You know, are we are we still in that position, or are we now starting to think about it and say, actually, no, there's a responsibility on me 
to to self police and to to be more aware of these issues. Well, you know, I mean, I worry about that because you know, obviously, as an American, uh, we are palpably aware that we are on the decline. Mm. Um, you know, we are very much aware of that we are the we're still the big, big dog on the block, but we will not be forever. And the writing is on the wall, wall on our version of the British Empire. Mm. Um, we are very much aware of that, and I and I think that um, you know Obama and Trump both represent a kind of different path toward negotiating that reality of sort of a soft path mm. with Obama of sort of um, well, what really matters is. American values and, you know, let's, if this is uh, a fait accompli, let's get on a glide path to where, you know, for example, we can strengthen international courts and, and have, um, you know, China enter the global community, India enter the global community and with uh, humanitarianism at its core or a kind of uh, isolationist uh, America first, Donald Trump strongman figure, um, but that seeding of authority, you know, the, the other issues that we talked about is that sort of just basic human seeding of authority to mm. those authority figures that, that seems so innate, and I worry about that, and one of the ways I worry about that is that uh, nobody dares correct Somebody, somebody else's kids. You know, yeah. there's no neighborhoods anymore. If you know, even when I was growing up, you know, we played with the other kids, but we didn't mess with their business. When my parents were growing up, um, you know, you brought food over. You know, somebody was unemployed, you went over and, and did the washing. You know, um, there was a sense of this is all of our business, and. Today, there's more of a sense of, well, we'll leave that for the cops. That's a judge's problem. Yeah, um, yeah that person is, you know, uh, hitting their kid or, 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 you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to leave this bad behavior in whatever form to these authorities. And, you know, it also ties to sort of the, um, you know, one difference between America and, and Europe is the concept that the state has a monopoly on violence. Mm. And that is something that, you know, I see certainly in France where, you know, if there is a violent altercation, it's like, you know, you know, don't resist, leave it to the cops. Yeah. Um, you know, those Americans who, you know, uh, fought on that train in France, we're brought up with a different mentality. Uh, we are not brought up with the idea of just wait for the cops. Um, so we're on that path toward becoming more like that, but we're maybe not there yet. Mm. It is, because I think that, that mentality is about the community. It's funny. It, it's in Britain as well. It's totally there that, you know, there's this um, rose-tinted view uh, and nostalgic uh, harkening back to what they call like the the Blitz Britain, you know that idea of sort of like everyone was getting together in the in the bomb shelters and they're all singing God Save the Queen and they're all looking after each other and then post-war Britain, you know post-war Second World War Britain 
and there's rationing, but they still looked out for your neighbours and all this other stuff in these sort of like communities. And um, and it is, you're right now, where people will, you know, double lock their doors and look through the blinds if they hear a noise outside just to make sure that neighbour over the road isn't doing something suspicious. It's it's It has gone, it, you know, and to, to give you an example, really, of... of, of um, the fear that sort of goes with it. I was, when I was on holiday recently, um, I was stood uh, by a swimming pool um, and this small child, a, a small girl, must have been no older than three, walked up to me and was sort of like, clearly indicating she was lost and she'd lost her parents. Uh, but being a male uh, and, you know, being quite a large, bold male, I was a bit like, I do not want part of this. I do not know, you know, how does this look? Um, and But again, I thought, like, I, could, I could step away and like, someone else's problem. Um, but like I say, I, I called, luckily, I, I called over um, a, a, a woman who was there and sort of like, I think this little girl's lost. Can, you know, I don't want to sort of palm off on you, but I think it's better if, if you interact with her rather than me. And she was fully understood, and she 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 managed to sort you know we we were together, and we resolved, it and we got back to her parents. But that instant in my head, there was that instant fear of oh, um, you know, I'm not sure. You know, is there not somebody else like like you say I can sort of like see the authority in this situation for them to take responsibility for it um, because it puts me in an awkward position. And I do think again that, like, maybe not my parents' age, but definitely my grandparents wouldn't even would have not have thought twice about taking that little girl's hand and saying, "Are you lost? How can I help you? Where do we go? You know, and you know, let's go and find somebody and, and walk off with her." Uh, and it probably wouldn't have been an issue. But like I say, in today's society, that with that the suspicion and the 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 level of, of bitterness, I think that exists. I think you know, you you can't take that risk. Maybe so. There's that fear as well. Yeah, well, I think that fear is, is really key there, and, and I think that's a profound story, and I appreciate you sharing it. Um, you know, I think that uh, I don't, um, I think that, you know, I would be more inclined to, to take an active role in that position, but there are many cases where, you know, I don't stop for somebody stranded on the side of the road. Mm. Um, you know, and I don't know what the situation is. I don't know if they're on drugs, you know. They probably just had a flat, or maybe they're just making a phone call, but um, I don't stop. Mm. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about about your story is the, the fear of how, how it might look. You know, the fear of surveillance, uh, of sort of, you know, what will the judges think when they, when they show up and, and see me talking to this young girl, right? Yeah. Well, to, to bring it back to the story, it's like young Beanie. He's the one that gets, you know, Bennett Beanie gets bullied and punched in the face, but when the judge turns up, he's got a nosebleed and he's the one pulled out for being a troublemaker. So it's, he was the victim, yet he's the one that's getting a face full of, uh, you know, abuse from a judge. And so I suppose there is that fear of, of you know, it being interpreted incorrectly or, um, you know, being pulled into these things. And, and, it is interesting that thing, like you say, of seeding authority. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a story with a lot to unpack. Yeah, for sure. And and again, I think that you know, just to, to wrap up, I think that you know, for me, probably one of the best things that you could say about a story is that it trains you to read differently. Mm. And 
trains you to read differently, not just the whole uh, Judge Dredd canon, but also, like we were talking about, you know, tropes and superheroes and action movies, you know, to sort of not, it doesn't tell you what side you have to come down on, but, uh, you know, to read differently and to see a level of nuance and to question sort of, is this really the good guy? Is this really okay because I see him as an authority figure or as the hero? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, you know, that is an important thing, not just for Judge Dredd and for fiction, but, you know, um, for politics, for getting along together, that you and I might not have any solutions to these problems, just like Total War might not have a solution to this, or the judges might not have a solution to this, but uh, at least we can see those nuances and have this conversation. And I think that's what the story does, is it sparks exactly that. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what, that's what good... Uh, you know, fiction and science fiction should do, really, isn't it? It allows you, it generates those debates and it's, it sparks those questions and um, hopefully, like you say, you, you take that idea and, and those questions and you can then apply them to everything else, either in your life or in other fictions that you uh, that you encounter. I'm into that. So, uh, really, okay, so as a final, just as a final comment then, um, you know, we've we've discussed it an awful lot, but so would you do? Do you recommend then to my listeners that they pick up? Um, I wouldn't say Judge America as probably a first point. I think it's not really a jumping on point. Um, but do you recommend that people read and in, in, in at least uh, try out Judge Dread? Oh, of course. I mean, you can't uh, know comics without knowing Judge Dread. Are mm. you kidding? <laughs> uh, you know, even if you have to do it like like I did, as just kind of picking up a story here or there, uh, you know, get your feet in. I mean, I think the um, I think the um, judge the judge death stuff is mm. uh, really accessible. You know, the the original three part uh, Ballin story, you know, is really accessible. Uh, you know, I think you could start with something like, uh, um, you know, I like uh, Cursed Earth or mm. something like that. Um, I think it's probably better not to start with the uh, complete case files because, you know, it's a little rough at the beginning. Yeah. Um, it might be harder to get into. But, I mean, if you're a fan of, you know, Garth Ennis, get some of those Garth Ennis volumes. Uh, you know, if you're a fan of, uh, I mean, any British uh, creator has written something for Judge Dredd pretty much. I was going to say, yeah, if, you, if you've if you got a fan, if there's someone in the British, you know, like you say, um, everyone from, let's say, Garth Ennis, Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Warren Ellis, um, some of those big names, Al Ewing, all of those have sort of like, have contributed, you know, in some way or form to Judge Dredd. So, uh, yeah, they're worth seeking out. Yeah, I can't imagine, I mean, I would, I would command everyone with the authority of the law <laughs> uh, to go out and investigate Judge Dredd. If you don't know it, uh, you're missing out. And, and it certainly is a staple of uh, British comics. And the same thing I said uh, about Medibarons, like, you know, we're part of a conversation, and especially, I don't want to invoke the special relationship, but I mean, if, if we want to, as Americans, if we want to uh, know comics from other countries, if you don't know British comics, you know, where people speak 
English, and half of our most acclaimed uh, American comics were written by Brits, uh, you know, you're missing out on the conversation. Definitely. Julian, as always, it's a absolute, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I'm glad that Juice Dread can spark that level of conversation. Um, so thank you for yeah. joining me. Me too. It's always a pleasure, Scott. Your kindred spirit. I love you, man. And it is an honor to get to talk to you about Judge Dredd. No, you too. It's been brilliant. I've been really looking forward to this. And uh, it's, a, it's actually kicked off. It sort of reignited my interest in Judge Dredd. So I'm, I'm pulling out some of my older, like you say, some, some actual um, collected editions. But I'm also pulling out a couple of old... Copies of 2000 AD I've got stashed away in the attic, some, some from the early 90s and before, so it's been quite exciting. And uh, Yeah, I, I, I confess I've been doing that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also quite an apt time because an, a fellow uh, 2000 AD character has just been confirmed for a film, so Rogue Trooper uh, is going to get a, has been greenlit for a film to be directed by Duncan Jones, so that's incredibly exciting news for me as well. I was a big fan of, of Rogue Trooper uh, back in the day. Yeah, I, I remember that strip. Uh, you know, I read maybe like the first 100 issues of 2080 just mm. as, you know, in digital, you know, form, um, you know, with all of the, uh, um, you know, the early Dan Dare stuff and, yes. uh, you know, all that stuff. Uh, they had the Harlem's uh, basketball team. Yes, um, ace, ace trucking yeah. and, uh, yeah, all those other things. Slay, early slaying. Yeah, Satanus, yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah, Satanus was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, highly I recommend checking out two thousand AD. Two thousand early two thousand AD was fantastic. And so what we we will do at some point, um, as more information comes in about the film, I think we will like, we will have to do a a, a focus in on on Rogue Trooper as well as a sort of uh, as I said about war comics and uh, and sci fi as well. Well, I'd love to do that and. Uh... Uh, I'm game, you know, hopefully we'll get that Judge Dredd TV series before too long. Yeah, yeah, I keep hearing news about it. They've written the pilot, apparently, so they've got a script, so fingers crossed that they they start production on it soon. Yeah, well, I I want more of of that, and, uh, you know, I'm going to be uh, reading Judge Dredd for a while now. Yes. Because you've got me uh, addicted again. (laughs) Well, I'm glad, I'm glad... I'm glad I can reopen that door. Thanks, Julian. We'll catch up soon. All right. Love you, man. Take care. Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. I have to say that was a mega discussion regarding Judge Dread America. Fantastic discussion with uh, good friend Julian Darius. We will be having him back at some point to talk, like we say, Rogue Trooper or probably one of the other 2000 AD characters. Um, but in the meantime, if you've got any favourite characters or you've got any commentary you want to make on Judge Dread or even this specific story, please get in contact. Uh, we're available on uh, email at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at 20th Century Geek uh, 
or on Facebook or on Instagram, uh, all under 20th Century Geek. And of course, if you really love us and you want to throw a couple of pennies our way, we are on Patreon, uh, and our rewards are actually pretty good. A monthly uh, movie review uh, special for subscribers only, and uh, an each month a special essay, 100 Years of Pop Culture. And if you don't want to do that... Please go onto one of our recording platforms, one of those podcast platforms. Subscribe, give a five-star review. All of it, all of it helps. Uh, so thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you again next time. I am the-